Welcome to the second walk of Via Divina, the Celtic Way. My name is Kathy Tuan McLean. I'm the director of InterVarsity's Faculty Ministry, where we help faculty, administrators, and staff to follow Jesus together on campus. I'll be your guide for half of our pilgrimage walks, and I am walking with you from the great city streets of Baltimore, Maryland. And if you haven't been on pilgrimage to Ireland, I'll tell you a secret. Neither have I. Yet I have been on a long and winding pilgrimage with Jesus. And honestly, most of the twists and turns haven't been my choice. God has never let me live where I want to live or stay where I want to stay, which growing up was in the beautiful state of Hawaii. Because my father was a physics professor, between a sabbatical in Beijing my freshman year of high school and a leave in New York my junior year, I uprooted four times in four years and developed a moving phobia. I didn't want to go to Chicago for college or stay there for graduate school. I didn't want to move to New York City to join InterVarsity staff. I didn't want to move to Boston for my husband to go to business school or move again to the suburbs eight years later. And once settled, I didn't want to ever move again. God challenged my moving phobia back in 2007, when at the third meeting ever of the Boston Faculty Fellowship, a professor brought a prophet to our new fellowship. Given the variety of spiritual backgrounds we came from, some of us were nervous to have a prophet in our midst. But this guy was the real deal. It felt like he read all of our souls. Among many encouraging things, he said to me, Oh, you're going to move. It's going to be for your husband. You need to not fight it because God's going to be in it. My worst fear prophesied aloud for my brand new faculty fellowship to hear. After that, every time my husband got a job nibble, I'd wrestle with God. Half the time, I actually managed to not fight it and tried to trust that God was bigger than all my fears. The other half the time, I was terrible, making every argument I could make to dig my heels into Boston. Twelve years later, the call came. Baltimore. Once again, I found myself leaving a place and a community where I was thriving to follow God to a place I knew nothing about. How about you? Has God invited you to go to places or get into situations that you didn't want to? Has God exposed your deepest fears? We're in good company. Patrick also found God telling him to go into scary and surprising situations. After Patrick escaped from enslavement in Ireland and returned to his family and home, he pursued a profession in pastoral ministry, ministry to his people in his country. But one night as Patrick slept, he saw in a vision a man 
like one from Ireland, calling out to him, Come back and walk among us. Patrick responded to this dream, seeing in it God's call on his life to return to the land of his captivity, his call to share with the Irish people the love of God that he himself had encountered on their land. By the time Patrick was alive in the 400s, Christianity had already been the religion tied to the Roman Empire for a hundred years. And so the expansion of Christianity in Europe was often closely tied to the expansion of the Roman Empire and its ways and culture. However, the Romans never conquered the island of Ireland as much as they tried. So when Patrick left his home, this time by choice, and returned to Ireland, he went without any political power backing him. He went without any military force promising protection. No, he went, dependent on the power of his God to protect him. He went, trusting that his God would go before him. He went, believing that the sacrificial love and the power of the risen Jesus was greater than anything that might try to harm him. If you've sensed the tension in our story so far, now is a great time to ground our senses. So let's prepare for what God has in store on today's walk with our sensory warm-up. Take a few breaths in deeply through your nose and out your mouth. Notice how your body feels today. Pause and stretch if you need it, or gently rub any part of your body that needs a loving touch. Offer a prayer of gratitude for your incredible body that is capable of so much despite its limitations. If you want, you can stop to sit or stand where you are or keep walking while we engage in another simple sensory exercise that's easy to remember and to do on your own. Five, four, three, two, one. First, I invite you to notice five things that you can see. Look for things that you typically might not notice. Now notice four things that you can hear. Identify three sensations in your body.
Take note of two distinct scents that you can smell. Finally, can you distinguish a taste in your mouth? Notice how you feel now. Take a few more seconds now to begin walking again or continue walking with an awareness of all of your senses. Deora Dei, the Celtic word for someone who voluntarily chooses to be a stranger, an exile, a wanderer for God. When Patrick chose to return to Ireland, he stepped into the vulnerability of his past trauma and the vulnerability of Deora Dei. He needed God's protection, a God who sees the exile, a God who is good to the stranger a God who protects those who wander with him. This is the kind of God that we find in the Bible. In Genesis, God calls Abram and his wife Sarai to Deora Day, to leave what they've known and wander with him. God promises them protection, and God promises them blessing. More than that, God promises to make them be a blessing. God promises that all families of the earth will be blessed through them. They will be blessed to be a blessing. Abram trusts these promises and goes with God. Yet Abram and Sarai's story after that is filled with stories of failure, deep character flaws, taking things into their own hands rather than trusting God, lying, hurting vulnerable people. It's remarkable that God keeps his promise to protect and bless them, to bring blessing through them. But even more remarkably, we find that God not only looks out for them, but God looks out for a young woman who is hurt by them. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. 
Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there, between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This young woman, standing alone, exhausted. She wipes the sweat off her forehead. She looks up, squinting at the piercing desert sun. She strains her eyes, but finds no sign of the place she left or the place she's going. She rests a hand on her swelling stomach, searching for movement, a sign of the young life growing within her. Do you see her? She bends over and scoops up a handful of running water and then another, drinking until her parched mouth relaxes, her thirst quenched. This spring, a small wadi in the desert saved her life. But how much longer can she go on? Do you see her there? A young, pregnant, foreign refugee, a woman forced into sex slavery who is traveling alone in the desert heat and sand. She'll never make it to wherever she's going. 
but she can't go back to the place of her abuse. To go back or keep going. Either way, she probably won't live long enough to give the baby a chance to be born. Do you see her there? No one sees her. No one has seen her for a very long time. She's had very few choices in her life, including who to work for or who fathers her child and whether she even gets to keep her own child. And now, here she is, run away and alone in the desert. But here, in her utter vulnerability, God sees her. As she rests by the spring, God sends an angel to her, the first angel to ever appear in Scripture. How crazy is that? The first angel to ever show up in the Bible appears to Hagar, one of the most marginalized people, an enslaved, single, pregnant, runaway Egyptian woman. The first thing the angel does is call Hagar by name. The angel of the Lord calls an enslaved Egyptian woman by her name, Hagar. God knew her name, and God called her by name, Hagar. The angel then asked two simple questions. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Throughout Scripture, rather than lecturing, preaching, or ranting about what we've done wrong, God often greets us with questions, inviting us into a truth-telling conversation. Yet telling the truth is hard work. It leaves us feeling vulnerable. Often we don't want to tell the truth about our pain because it makes us face it. Other times, we don't want to talk about our potential. It can be terrifying to own all the gifts and power God has placed within us. Either way, we're content to live in our illusions, to numb ourselves with mindless entertainment, or to run away from both our pain and our promise. Let's pause now to enter into the story ourselves. Where have you come from? Where are you going? What vulnerable truth do you need to share with God? Hagar responds to the angel's questions 
by telling the truth. Hagar admits that she's run away from her mistress. This is a risky move to tell the truth that she's run away from her rightful owners. And for a time, it isn't clear that telling the truth is the right idea because the angel tells her to go back and submit to Sarai. Why would God tell Hagar to go back and submit to her mistress? Why would God ask her to go back to oppression and injustice? We don't know. After all, nothing has changed. Hagar will continue to be enslaved. As far as she knows, her son will still belong to another woman. She will still be a foreigner, a concubine, a powerless outsider. And yet, everything has changed. Hagar enters the desert with no hope, no dignity, no future. She leaves the desert with hope, a new identity, and a destiny. She now has a relationship with a God who has heard her cries of misery, the God who gives her a whole set of promises, including that she will have descendants too numerous to count, an almost identical promise to the one God gave Abram, and that she will bear a son named Ishmael. God hears because God has heard her misery. She is the woman who has seen God and lived. Her son will be proof that God hears. Her primary identity changes from enslaved to beloved. After her encounter with the angel, Hagar names God El Roy. You are the God who sees me. Hagar is the first and only person in all of scripture who dares name God. She obeys God's very difficult command because she has experienced God's goodness that she's seen and loved. She clings to the promise that she will live, that her son will live. But more than that, she can cling to the knowledge that she has seen the one who sees her. We don't see details from the years of walking with God that seem to have transformed Hagar's life, even as she was still enslaved. But we know from Jesus that obedient, suffering love is what sets all of us free. There's no better picture of this than Jesus crucified. Jesus joins our suffering, and through embracing the human condition, even to the point of torture, gives us life, forgiveness, and access to God. Surely it was that same love that set Hagar free. It was that love that allowed Hagar to become the matriarch of a great nation. Surely it was that same suffering love of the crucified Jesus 
that set Patrick free to return to the people who had enslaved him, to return to the place of his trauma. Surely it was that same love that gave him the courage to choose day or a day, to trust that Christ would protect him as he returned to Ireland. The stories say Liray, the High King of Ireland, was a fierce ruler who garnered total obedience. In the spring of 433 AD, musicians, poets, witches, druids, and many others gathered for an annual festival on the hill at Tara, the center of the political and religious power. The highlight of this ceremonial orgy was a human sacrifice believed to strengthen the power of the high king. The festival fire blazed through the night on that hilltop. By the king's command, no other fire would be lit for the duration of the festival. For miles across the vast landscape and rolling hills, only the king's fire was to be seen. And anyone who defied this order, anyone who lit a fire that might compete with the king's, risked death. It so happened that the king's festival fell during Holy Week. On Easter morning, long before the sun rose, Patrick and his followers climbed the hill of Slain, just 10 miles away. Their tradition, after waiting in the darkness of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, when hope was lost and when darkness seemed to reign, was to kindle a fire early Easter morning to symbolize the light of Christ the triumph of God's sacrificial love. Yet that morning on the hill of Slain, this simple act of obedient worship was an act of disobedience to the high king's decree. This simple act of Easter worship could be a death sentence for Patrick. While a human life was sacrificed to increase the high king of Ireland's power, Patrick's community worshipped the High King of Heaven, who sent his son to pay the final human sacrifice. As the sun prepared to rise, they worshipped the risen Jesus. They lit the Paschal, or Easter fire, on the hill of Slain, in view of the High King. They were utterly defenseless. They carried no weapons. They were completely vulnerable to the military and religious and political powers around them. But they had the power, protection, and presence of God. Imagine how fervently they prayed and summoned God to guard against all powers, all evil, all threats. It was likely a breastplate prayer, a prayer of protection like this. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. I bind this day to me forever by power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his death on cross 
for my salvation. His bursting from the spiced tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom. I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to right of me, Christ to left of me, Christ in my lying, my sitting, my rising, Christ in heart of all who know me, Christ on tongue of all who meet me, Christ in eye of all who see me, Christ in ear of all who hear me. I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one, and one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. and his companions prayed and waited for their likely death, the king's men set out to hunt them. We don't know for sure what happened next. Some say that the king tried to extinguish the fire, but it continued to blaze. Some say God confused the king's men, causing them not to see Patrick and his friends standing in plain sight, but a small herd of deer instead. Some say that the king was impressed with seeing Patrick's devotion and boldness to worship his God. We do know that Patrick and his friends did not die that day. God preserved their lives and showed his power such that the high king gave Patrick his blessing to wander the island and preach. Not only that, but this led to another blessing, what's called the bloodless conversion of Ireland. Like with Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, God didn't preserve Patrick's life only to save him, but to bless a whole people. There are still powers in our world today that demand allegiance, that prey on the vulnerable. Sacrifices are still demanded to bolster the positions of the powerful. What are the powers that threaten you or your people? What sacrifices are demanded?
What protection from God do you or your people need? Like with Hagar and Patrick, God places power and potential within us, small, ordinary people, to be a blessing. Like Abram and Sarai, we often mess up in all sorts of terrible ways. We are both victims and oppressors. We are broken and beloved. There's good news for us and our people in all our complexity. What are ways that you have contributed to the oppression of others, either by your action or your failure to act? Where have you tried to protect yourself at the expense of others? How is God inviting you to be a blessing? The Psalms are a great place for us to reckon with our complexity, to let the Holy Spirit convict our hearts when we've been the perpetrator of harm, to be comforted when we've been the victim, and everything in between. As you continue to reflect on these questions, we invite you to pray Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Hi, I'm Rachel Guo, formerly Kuhn. 
staff with InterVarsity Native Ministries in Bellevue, Washington, the ancestral land of the Duwamish, Stiligwamish, and Coast Salish peoples. I really appreciate Patrick's story on the Hill of Slain as someone who also returned to a place of apparent defeat. As a TCK, a third culture kid, my transition from high school to college wasn't only about crossing that significant life stage, it was also very cross-cultural. Just after World War II, my mom's parents went to Japan as missionaries. My mom, who's of English, Swiss, and Swedish lineage, was born and raised in Tokyo, the place her parents spent 37 years evangelizing to Japanese students and planting churches. My dad was born to a Dutch-Irish mother and a German-Russian immigrant father in Michigan. My parents met in China in the 1980s, where they were both language students who wanted to be able to share the hope of Christ with a nation of people who had just come out of a dark time of cultural revolution. I spent my childhood in Hong Kong and Taiwan, attending British and American schools, and eating my fill of Zhengzhou, steamed dumplings, tiambula, deep fried fish cake, and lots and lots of Junjunaita, known here as boba. Even though I'm tall, blonde, and blue-eyed, I felt much more comfortable in the Asian host countries where I lived and traveled than in the country that issued my passport, the United States. When I moved to a rural majority white town in Northern California to go to college, I'd never felt so uncomfortable in my skin. I found myself surrounded by people who looked like me but incorrectly assumed that I was like them. Sometimes I'd concede to speak a phrase in Chinese to appease their curiosity and to validate my own story. I really had spent my first 18 years of life in East Asia. My roommates found me so strange that, to my dismay, they coined a new ethno-cultural category for me, Weijin, meaning white Asian. Unlike them, I didn't grow up going to summer camps, boy band concerts, or American football games. I could converse with a taxi driver in Chinese, but I couldn't sing the U.S. national anthem. I felt like a foreigner among my own people. I still felt like a foreigner in my third year in the U.S. when I transferred to a community college and joined the volleyball team. I thought a semester of traveling with a college team would help me level up my understanding of the American experience. I wanted to be enculturated. I also thought it would be a great way to follow the footsteps of my parents and grandparents and share Jesus with people foreign to me. Only a month or so into the season, I grew discouraged that my efforts to share Christ with my teammates wasn't making much of an impact. At some point, growing up, I bought into this idea that I needed to be good enough for God, that I needed to earn God's love. I was so enslaved to this idea of performing for God that as I grew overwhelmed by my own sense of failure, I spiraled into a deep depression, doubting God's existence and nearly losing my faith. A few months later, I dropped out of school. I could barely roll out of bed in the morning. I found myself back home in Taiwan with my parents, wondering how I'd become such a failure. I sincerely wanted my life to end. In the midst of my depression, I wasn't even sure I believed in God, 
but I still prayed to him sometimes. Though I'd grown up with a strong value for the scriptures, the written word of God, I didn't know that God speaks to his people directly. One day I prayed, God, if you're even real, how could you even love me right now? I'm here at home living with my parents, not working or going to school, just being a drain. How could I be worthy of your love? And then I heard him, a soft whisper, a deep knowing within my being. He said, that's right. You haven't done anything and you can't do anything. I just love you. Years of living under the lie that I needed to be good enough for God broke in that moment. His words of love shattered it to pieces. You can't do anything. I just love you. After a season of renewal in my own life, I prayed the bold prayer, God, where do you want to send me? How can I serve you? And then I heard the voice again, go back to the community college. Oh, my boldness was suddenly extinguished. How could I go back to a place that had been so dark for me? But remembering the love of the one who gave everything for me and called me out of my own darkness, I said, yes, because of your great love, I will go. I still felt weak. I still felt like a foreigner, still a third culture kid trying to understand American pastimes. But I went back to the community college with a story of how God had brought light into my darkness. There was a tiny fledgling InterVarsity chapter there without a staff worker when I returned, and I spent a year leading that chapter as a student. Then I made a bigger commitment to the college and joined InterVarsity staff. Eventually, seven years after my spiritual defeat as a student there, I watched as God brought revival through a younger student to my old volleyball team. <laughs> wow, if I hadn't gone through that spiritual crisis in college and been transformed by a real encounter with God's love, I never would have had the courage to go back and see what God would bring in my place of darkness and defeat. Years later, I'd done a lot of reading in preparation to co-lead InterVarsity's Journey Ireland pilgrimage. When our group was visiting the Hill of Slain, I remember how fierce the wind was, an uncomfortable biting wind that whipped my hair and numbed my cheeks. I imagined the courage it took for Patrick to come back to the land of his darkness. I imagined Patrick on that hill, looking out in that same way I was, but 1600 years before me, contemplating the risk he was about to take before lighting the Easter fire in defiance of Ireland's High King. Our group of pilgrims took refuge from the winds in the ruins of the old seminary on the top of the hill in a small nave that was probably once a gathering place for prayers and teaching. As our group of 21st century worshipers gathered to do our midday prayers, we joined in to sing with saints through the centuries, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. As our song echoed off those curved stone walls, its meaning struck me even more deeply. On this very hill where Patrick had defied the king, where centuries later, 
Christians built a seminary to worship the High King of Heaven, we also sang, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. I love this verse. It rings of light and darkness and victory in the face of impossibility. When I sing it, I sing my own story. Because of Christ, my high king of heaven, I had the courage to say yes to go back to the community college. I could say yes to joining InterVarsity in Hawaii, where the native Hawaiian community finds hope in the high king Yesu, even under the oppression of military occupation and corporate greed. And again, years after that, I could say yes to join InterVarsity Native Ministries and journeying with Native students in the Pacific Northwest. Now rooted in Christ's protection and hope in God's power, I can go with God wherever He sends me because He is the High King of Heaven and the ruler of all the earth. It's kind of ironic that Rachel, a third-generation missionary kid, should share her story before I do, because both sides of my Chinese family had a pretty uneasy relationship with missionaries. My parents left China as children, and they, along with my uncles and aunts, had a lot of critical things to say about the missionaries they saw there. How they profited off the Chinese. How they thought they were superior to the Chinese. Something especially egregious, since my very ethnocentric family clearly believes Chinese are the center of the world. Mama used to say, Only the Catholics, with their vows of poverty, celibacy, and obedience, were any good, because they came to serve. Other missionaries came to be served. Yet Jesus was another deal. My grandmother, Popoa, had been educated by Western missionaries, so she'd heard about Jesus as a child. During the war, my grandparents and their five children spent most of my mother's childhood running from city to city, escaping the Japanese occupying armies. When Mama was four, the Japanese captured my grandfather, who served in government, wanting to use him to promote their puppet government. Popoa spent the first week trying to find him. Finally, resting on a bridge and weeping, she prayed to Jesus. And when she prayed, she heard a voice tell her to go to a certain hotel. There she met a Japanese major who denied that her husband was there. In a fit of temper and courage, she said, If Japan lost the war and you were captured, what would your wife do? We don't lose wars, he yelled and pulled out his sword, brandishing it at her. 
Popola stood her ground. He smiled, put back his sword, and said, Your husband is here. Months later, my grandfather somehow escaped. But since that prayer on the bridge, Popoa and Mama prayed only to the God of Jesus. Many of us love the promise from Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yet we often forget that this promise came to not an individual, but a people forced into exile. To this people in exile, God says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The promise comes if they accept God's invitation to build houses, plant vineyards, and bless this land of their oppressors. Moving to Baltimore is pretty insignificant compared to Mama's family running from city to city to save their lives, or Patrick's return to those who enslaved him, or Hagar's return to oppressors. Yet as I've leaned into trusting the words I heard, that I needed to not fight the move, that I needed to trust God was in it, I tried to embrace the message of Jeremiah 29. And God has met and surprised me with the wonder of Baltimore. This city that's so beautiful, so troubled, so complex, and yet so loved by God. As our walk comes to a close, what prayer are you crying out to Jesus? Where are you afraid to light your fire of hope or worship? Receive God's protection again through the end of the breastplate prayer, and then let the lyrics of Be Thou My Vision become your prayer and your worship. Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me, Christ in my lying, my sitting, my rising, Christ in the heart of all who know me, Christ on the tongue of all who meet me, Christ in the eye of all who see me, Christ in the ear of all who hear me.